Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Algonquin Books, publisher of West of Here, the latest novel from Jonathan Evison. The New York Times book review calls West of Here, quote, riotously funny and wonderfully charming, end quote, and Vanity Fair calls it a booming, big-hearted epic. Algonquin is also the publisher of Panther Baby, the upcoming memoir from Jamal Joseph, which will publish in February 2012. Panther Baby is Jamal Joseph's gripping account of his youth and his time in the Black Panthers. This is a life that has taken extraordinary turns from the streets of Harlem to Rikers Island and Leavenworth prisons to the halls of Columbia, where Joseph is now the chair of the School of the Arts Film Division. This is one of the most anticipated memoirs of 2012. Publishers Weekly calls it spirited and well-honed, a clear-eyed casting back that reveals the streamlined, fluid quality of a fine storyteller. That's West of Here by Jonathan Evison and Panther Baby, coming soon from Jamal Joseph. Both are available from Algonquin. West of Here, you can get it right now. Panther Baby, you can pre-order at Amazon. These are books. You can read them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome to the program. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to have you here. Thank you very much for tuning in. The guest today is Charles Shields. He is the author of And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life, the new biography of the late, great Kurt Vonnegut, available now in hardcover from Henry Holt. Uh, this is the first ever authoritative biography of Vonnegut, authorized by the man himself shortly before he passed away. Uh, Charles Shields was actually with Vonnegut on the day that he had his tragic fall in New York City outside of his brownstone. Uh, Shields has, uh, you know, he's got some really interesting first-person accounts, and he probably knows Vonnegut's life better than just about anybody. So very excited to be talking with Charles in just a moment. Very excited to be discussing the life and work of Kurt Vonnegut, who is a uh, real hero to me, real literary hero. And, uh, you know, it's kind of personal. I spent part of my childhood in Indiana uh, you know, the second half of my youth, junior high and high school, and Vonnegut was certainly an early influence. Uh, I remember 
I don't actually remember the act of reading any of his books. I don't remember hardly anything. But I do remember that I read Cat's Cradle in Miss Goodyear's English class in seventh grade. And for me, that's something because I do have a terrible memory. But, uh, you know, I remember that with some degree of real specificity. I remember when I read it and who assigned it to me. And I definitely remember liking it a lot. And I remember being fascinated by the fact that this guy, the guy who wrote it, actually went to high school right down the road at Short Ridge on Meridian Street, just a few minutes from where I lived. So that blew my mind a little bit, and I think it expanded the realm of possibility for me, the fact that you could do this, that people from Indiana could do stuff like this. And, uh, you know, I actually wound up writing Vonnegut a fan letter years ago, uh, one of the, the very few fan letters I've ever written. And uh, I was struggling as a writer. I wrote him a letter. I actually reread this thing not too long ago and uh, was just humiliated. It was awful. It was a terrible letter. I was gushing, and I was trying to sound too formal or something. And worst of all, I was kind of imitating his style. I was kind of doing Vonnegut while writing Vonnegut a fan letter. And I talked way too much about my own writing. It was just terrible. And uh, i got to say, I really hope he never read it. Please, God, tell me he didn't read that thing. Uh, I think I sent it to Donald Farber, Vonnegut's attorney. I think that was his name, Donald Farber. Mr. Farber, if you happen to be listening, please destroy that letter. Pretty please. So, you know, it's interesting, the fact that I feel terrible about sending a bad fan letter to a hero. And, I mean, on on the one hand, yeah, I get it. You don't want to send a shitty letter to somebody you admire. Um, but on the other hand, I shouldn't feel too terrible about it. I mean, I was sending a fan letter. I was, I was sending a, a nice letter telling the guy that I liked him. And yet I feel bad about it. And I feel bad about a lot of things. I'm one of those people who worries a lot about whether or not I've offended someone or whether or not somebody likes me. And I think the Internet in particular is really terrible this way. Uh, When you think about, like, you know, social media or email, trying to decipher whether or not someone likes you or not or whether they think you're an idiot. And you're sitting there trying to read an email and decipher the subtext and, you know, you're coping with the fact that there's no tonal register. It's exhausting. So this reminds me of something else, uh, you know, along the same lines, uh, speaking of confusion and mixed emotions and so on. I was talking to a buddy of mine, he's a writer friend, uh, and we were hanging out and we were discussing something that had been published on The Nervous Breakdown, my uh, online uh, culture magazine. And uh, it was an essay, and in the essay, there was a mention of an author in a book. And I'm going to try to tell this story without revealing any names as a courtesy to my friend. But basically, it was an essay, and in this essay, an author's name was mentioned, and there was effusive praise. There was excitement, it was a positive mention, unequivocally, and in this positive mention, there were expletives. There was cussing, and it was an effusive, excited cussing. It was like, this is fucking awesome. It was that kind of thing. And so my friend, he knows uh, the publisher, or somebody who works at the publisher, uh, the publisher of the book in question, And the publisher apparently wasn't all that happy about it, felt that it wasn't appropriate or properly literary, and that it somehow reflected poorly on the brand or the imprint, or that it was too casual and too crass and inappropriate or whatever. And I was sitting there and I, you know, listening to this, and I felt myself blush at first, and I found myself feeling really bad about it initially. And it was the same kind of thing, uh, you know, somewhat similar to feeling bad, perhaps, about uh, writing a, a bad fan letter. Same sort of ballpark. 
You know, I was like, oh man, I feel, I feel terrible. There was cussing. We shouldn't have cussed. The New York Times book review doesn't cuss. We've offended someone. But then, you know, like a few seconds later, I started to come to my senses and realized that this person at this publishing house was offended by our praise. I mean, I reread the thing. It was a resolutely positive mention. There was nothing negative about it. But the mention used, uh, quote-unquote, inappropriate language, unbecoming of a, a serious publisher. And so then I, I kind of shifted gears and I started thinking, uh, you know, this is bullshit. Why am I feeling bad about this? This is, this is establishment bullshit. This is self-serious, self-protective, small-minded, ego-driven bullshit. And I hate that kind of bullshit, you know? I hate self-seriousness. We're praising you. We are enthusiastic about you. Quit taking yourself so seriously. And so then I'm sitting there with my buddy and I started cussing, somewhat out loud, somewhat in my head, you know, just trying to kind of spite, in, in spite of the whole, or to spite the whole thing. I got angry. I'm getting kind of worked up about it now. Like I felt myself actually get hot a little bit. You know, I could feel my body temperature change. And, and at first it was because I was embarrassed. You know, you blush and you turn a little bit hot. And then when I realized that I probably shouldn't be embarrassed, or, or you know, I got mad about being embarrassed, if that makes any sense. And then I got a little, a little bit more flushed. I, my, I got a little bit more overheated. So self-seriousness in particular really bothers me. And uh, I get anxious when people get really brand sensitive, if that makes any sense, when people get really protective of their own commodity. And I mean, I, I understand that everybody's trying to sell something. People are trying to sell themselves. God, do I hate that phrase. But people are doing that. People are trying to project, you know, project a certain image. Every one of us out there, me included, whether you're a shoe salesman or an electrician or a stockbroker or an author, you're, you're doing a little bit of that. Kurt Vonnegut did it. He really did. You read this biography and you learn that he grew his hair out to appeal to the counterculture. It was calculated. He let his hair go shaggy in an effort to brand himself. And Vonnegut had worked as a pitch man in his earlier days, in his earlier professional life. And, you know, he was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. But you know what? When I read that, it made me, like, made me feel bummed out. And, you know, I'm not condemning the guy or anything, and you know, not in any kind of sweeping way. I'm just saying, it bums me out. That's how it makes me feel. Uh, I don't like it when people posture. I don't like it when people try to craft themselves into some kind of brand. And I can feel that, and I'm conscious of it. Uh, I think what I want is I want for people to just be themselves, you know? But then there's the question, you know, I, you know, I do this. Of course I do. I have a logo for the podcast. I'm wearing a gas mask. What does that mean? I chose the color yellow. Why? So, you know, I want people to be themselves, but you got, you know, how do I be myself? How do you know, how does one be oneself? What does that mean? Who are we? And, uh, you know, Vonnegut used to say something along the lines of, we are who we pretend to be. So you better be careful who you pretend to be. And that sort of makes me anxious when I start thinking along those lines because I don't want to pretend to be anyone. But I sort of feel like he's right. And assuming maybe he is right and that this whole, you know, pretending to be someone is somehow inevitable, then I guess I want to pretend to be someone who doesn't want to pretend to be someone. I want to be real. I don't want to be fake. And I don't want other people to be fake. And I don't want to be 
fake nice to people and I don't want to network using the internet to try to befriend people who are like maybe quasi influential or partially I think in my imagination influential or whose public interactions with me online might somehow reflect well on me and confer a legitimacy in the professional realm do you know what I'm saying I hate thinking like that it feels gross to me and it feels off target and really sort of fundamentally irresponsible on a human level I mean, for God's sake, we're all going to be dead soon. That's what I tell myself. Is this necessary? This bullshit? Do we really not have anything better to do? Shouldn't we be having more fun? Shouldn't we be more honest with each other? Shouldn't we ask the kinds of questions that Kurt Vonnegut books tend to ask? The kinds of questions that college students with large bongs tend to ask? Questions like, why are we here? Why are we here? When is the last time you asked someone that? You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm honestly not sure I've ever asked anyone, anyone that. Not even when I was a kid. Maybe when I was a kid. But you would think that would be fundamental. Why are we here? And of course, Vonnegut actually answered that in his work. And uh, his answer is this. To be the eyes, ears, and conscience of the creator of the universe, you fool. He wrote that, or something like that. He wrote a lot of things, and he wrote a lot of good things. Uh, thank you, Kurt Vonnegut. Rest in peace. Thank you for the good words, and thank you for pretending to be you. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, I, I spent the first part of my career being a high school teacher. Now, I taught English and social studies. Um, I taught To Kill a Mockingbird, which uh, led me to my first biography for adults, which was Mockingbird, A Portrait of Harper Lee. But even before that, when I left high school teaching in 1997, I wanted to write nonfiction, so I wrote 20 biographies and histories for young people. Um, they were my audience. I knew them best. So these are the kinds of books that are aimed at the school market and uh, about 20,000 words long and um, on people like um, Amy Tan and Captain Cook and the Discoveries of the South Pacific, that sort of thing. So um, after doing those for six, seven years, I realized that I, I really wanted to raise the bar for myself and try a more challenging market. And that's why I went for the Harper Lee book. And the reason that I like biography is that it draws on a lot of things that I'm interested in. It draws on, um, of course, books and um, the creative effort on the part of authors, 
I'm interested in why people are the way they are. So in the course of researching them as writers, I also find out about what sort of influences led them to become writers. Uh, I always make sure to include a lot about um, their ideas, and um, you know, I don't pass over the books lightly. Uh, so that's really the story of, of how I became a biographer and, and how I got to Vonnegut was I was in college in the late 60s. The Vietnam War was going on. I was of draftable age. In fact, I was in the first draft lottery. And um, a lot of us were reading Vonnegut because it, to us he seemed to be talking and telling us in, in the phrase at the times the way it was, you know, how it is. Uh, he has a very intimate voice on the page. And um, he was telling us that uh, life isn't what you think it is. Um, just because somebody's older doesn't mean that they're wise. Uh, hypocrisy and paradox are on either hand. Uh, stay, work, stay, stay awake, stay alert. And um, he was embraced by my generation and also in succeeding generations because his appeal isn't time-centered. What I mean is, you know, his books don't become dated easily. He's talking about the big questions that young adults are asking themselves about why are we here and what's the meaning of life, what should I be doing. Um, so, you know, when you are on the cusp of that kind of, those kinds of questions, Vonnegut starts to talk to you. Well, yeah, no, I think I read, uh, I want to say I read maybe a review or an essay about Vonnegut by, I want to say it was Jay McInerney, and he said mm -hmm. that uh, like Vonnegut was great at asking or writing about the questions that like college freshmen ask themselves, you know, like right. he's kind of a master at that. Right. Well, he said he he realized that his appeal was to to young people, and he said, um, "I want to catch young people before they become generals and politicians. <laughs> I want to raise questions in their minds and doubts." So he he tried to convey to them a kind of healthy skepticism. You know, he he's not a nihilist, and he's really not even a black humorist. Uh, in the book, I use the term comic didactic. In other words, I think he teaches through using humor and paradox and parables. Yeah, that seems to make sense. I mean, I don't know. There, there are a lot of labels that are applied to Vonnegut that after, uh, you know, I'm sure after writing the book, but after reading it as well, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you perceive about him uh, via his public image and the way that he presented himself that aren't exactly uh, accurate. Right. Um, Vonnegut, the man, is not Vonnegut, the author, and, and that may seem hard to believe because the man wrote the books. But um, he had a very distinct creative and personal side. Uh, when he was at his typewriter alone in his room, he, he uh, was one person talking about things that mattered to him and ideas that mattered to him. You know, Vonnegut's unusual as an author in that his books aren't powered by characters or particularly by plots. They're powered by ideas. So these books are in essence sort of, almost sort of essayistic. You know, they're long disquisitions on our relationship to God or truth or, you know, love. Um, but then there was Vonnegut the father, Vonnegut the husband, Vonnegut the neighbor, and he was an irascible guy, uh, difficult to get along with at times, distant as a father. And his kids once described him as haunted. And I came to appreciate that because as I got to know him, there always seemed to be something going on behind his eyes. He seemed to be thinking about something else. And I think it had to do with his terrible experiences in World War II and also his disappointment in whether he whether he thought he was lovable, because I think Kurt doubted whether he was a valuable person, and writing for him was a vindication. 
Wow. You know, and I think his mother's suicide as well. I mean, I, th- I, I you know, reading about him, I felt like, you know, uh, World War Two and his mother's suicide, which it's sort of unbelievable to me. But they, you know, those two things happen within what, you know, a year or two of each other. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, his, 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 yeah, his mother kills herself on Mother's Day. Under, while he's home on leave. While he's home on leave. And then what? Within months, he's off in at the Battle of the Bulge. And then he's a right. prisoner of war. <laughs> Right. Mother kills himself herself in May of 44. He goes to Europe in September, captured at the Bulge in December. And uh, in February of 1945, he's uh, underneath a pattern bombardment by the 8th Air Force and the RAF. He had to think that whatever gods there are, are we're trying to erase him from the face of the earth. I mean, yeah, like who wouldn't be haunted? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's an, it's an unbelievable amount of trauma to have to endure. Like even one of those things alone would be a lifetime's worth of, of trauma. But to have both of those uh, right up against one another, it's, it's kind of unfathomable. I mean, it's, right. well, it, it wasn't the, the bare fact of his mother's suicide that affected him so deeply. It was also the timing of it. He was, home on leave. It was Mother's Day. He had made an effort to be there. They all knew he was shipping out for Europe. And she killed herself and doesn't leave a note. And, you know, it, it was macabre and eloquent at the same time. And for the rest of his life, he tried to figure out this riddle to which there was no answer because it, there was a silence on the other side. Why did she kill herself on Mother's Day when he was in the house about to leave? Um, so it, it added to his sadness. And then, of course, when he was in Dresden retrieving bodies from mine, from uh, basements, doing body mining after the pattern bombing, um, he saw, you know, he saw sort of almost the apocalypse in a sense. I mean, this was, how could it get any worse? Women and children you know, floating in the water in basements, and he had to bring them up into the light, take them to the plaza where they were thrown on a pile and burned. Uh, it really was, you know, the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, if that's not the apocalypse, I mean, I don't know, you know, or, or seeing what what it would be like, I don't know what is. Right. Uh, well, and you know, I think maybe like a, to give a little context because, like, you know, I I was aware that he, you know, obviously had a troubled uh, mother. I was aware of her uh-huh. suicide prior to your uh, to reading your book, but I was not aware of like the the grimness of his childhood and like the. Uh-huh the emotional uh, distance that he felt as a kid. I mean, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, Kurt had an older brother, Bernard Vonnegut, who became a famous atmospheric scientist. In fact, it was Bernard who uh, co-invented cloud seeding. And all the attention was focused on Bernard because he was brilliant. I mean, he was taking advanced classes in school, and he was you know, bicycling over to the local college and things like that so he could get enough math. Uh, went to MIT, and poor old Kurt is bumbling around uh, at home, you know, seven to nine years younger, I can't remember which, but his interest is books. His interest is jokes. He likes to listen to the radio. You know, he's very verbal. So they really were bookends as brothers. One was highly cerebral and could find no value in art, thought that anything artistic was merely decorative. If it didn't have a solid, quantifiable answer, it was worthless. And here's Kurt, all personality, all charisma, all fun. Um, So he felt that his parents shunted him aside and were fascinated with his elder brother. And it seemed to be proven so, you know, when Kurt was about to go to college and he wanted to major in English. But Bernard intervened and persuaded his parents that English was for the birds. I mean, get something practical. 
he should go into science and technology. So he went off to Cornell. He majored in something that he was not interested in. And as a result, he flunked out and well, ended up at the Battle of the Bolt. Well, no, and he also, I mean, didn't he want, I mean, he had uh, an opportunity to go to work for the Indianapolis Star, but rather than even right. go to college. So, I mean, it's like, how, how might history have been different? How might, our, you know, literary history exactly. have been different? Right. He thought he, he thought he was doing things that would make everyone proud. He, you know, walked in the editorial offices of the Indianapolis Star, explained that he was editor of his school newspaper and loved to write. And the editor said, well, how about a job, kid? And so he comes home sent to tell everybody, I'm going to be a newspaper man. And the response is, no, you're not. You're going to Cornell. You're going to Cornell and you're going to major in chemistry. And he was a terrible student there. I mean, he was he was good on the newspaper, it seemed like. He, you know, it wasn't... Well, he, Yes, he was very good on the newspaper. And you know what? Kurt had the horsepower to handle science. He got an A-plus in physics in high school, and it was a kind of a magnet school that he went to. Um, and, you know, later on when he went into the Army and he took an officer training exam and it turned out that he got high marks, they put him into artillery, uh, the artillery and also some kind of engineering program. So, look, Kurt could have done it, but it wasn't where his heart was. He, you know, his instincts didn't lead him in that direction. And you're not going to be joyful about anything that people are making you do that you don't want to do. Right. Right. You know. So um, what about his father? You know, his father through all of this, uh, you know, his mother was, uh, you know, we, we should say that they were very well, you know, wealthy people, at least prior to the mm -hmm. Depression. I mean, I, I hadn't realized quite how wealthy they were, but she was the, she was an heiress, his mother was. Yes, she was. And so they, yeah. were, they were living with servants and mm -hmm. chefs and the whole thing. Exactly. They they lived in a, an arts and craft home uh, in 1922, which at that time was you know very she she and uh, on the cusp of everything uh, progressive in it in architecture. And um, his father was getting big commissions, doing not really very exciting work, but you know it it paid the bills. It paid for the servants, and it paid for the laundress, and it paid for the yard man. Um, he was designing buildings for corporations. And his mother was the heiress of one of the largest breweries in the Midwest, of the Indianapolis Brewery Company, and she came into a great deal of money. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's mother, mother came out for the 1908 London season. She was abroad looking for a European husband. In fact, she became engaged and it didn't work out. But part of the reason, in Kurt's words, that she became cracked was because uh, the Depression took away all of their money. She couldn't believe how far she had fallen. And uh, she was, you know, permanently um, depressed, angry, and um, felt like a victim. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's sort of crazy how much of her identity seemed to have been invested in being wealthy. You know, and I guess it's not that uncommon, you know, especially to go right. for, in, in, in a cataclysmic economic environment like that, where people who were once wealthy suddenly you know, go in the other direction in dramatic fashion. You know, people's entire uh, sense of themselves is rocked. You know, it seems like that's what happened to her. Definitely, yeah. Or she, or Bonnick had said that his mother was addicted to wealth and empty graces. And when they had to cancel their membership in the country club, to her that was being cast out of Eden. Wow. And so then, and that was when, when he was in, that was prior to his high school because his, his, uh, elder siblings, his brother and his sister went to like private school and then he went to Shortridge. Right. They went to private schools and he was taken out of a private school, sort of a Montessori type school in about fourth grade. And he regarded that as the first indication that they didn't think too much of him because 
Somehow they managed to get the money to continue educating his uh, elder sister and elder brother privately, but he went to a public school. He said, you know, looking back, it was absolutely, it was really kind of fine with him because all the neighborhood kids went to the local public school and he was finally with his friends. But, you know, as an adult, he, he thought that, the indi- that what that indicated was that they didn't think that he was worth the expense. And do you think that's true? I mean, do you think that, I mean, did you find anything definitive about that? It does seem sort of fishy that his his elder siblings would continue and that he would be pulled. But maybe they thought, you know, the, the kids were older, you know, the older kids had gone along so far in these schools they didn't want to pull him out, whereas he was young enough to, yeah. to switch. That, that, that would be my logic as a parent, you know, the, a fourth grader. Changing schools is not a big deal, but if you're in the middle of high school and you get taken out of a private high school and then sent somewhere else, plus also, you know, kid Vonnegut uh, was as a kid was up to a lot of hijinks. He was a lot of fun. I mean, all the people I interviewed who knew him as a young man said that he was mischievous and humorous and uh, very droll. Maybe his parents thought they sensed a, a lack of seriousness on his part, and he wouldn't care. But you see, when he became convinced of the premise of that my parents really didn't love me or appreciate me. All, he put all this evidence in service of that. You know, when he would talk to me, he would show further proof of the fact that nobody taught him anything, and, and his father didn't even teach him how to throw a ball. Uh, so anyway, it was all, to him, part of the overarching uh, complaint that he had, that he was ignored at home. So, you know, so let's let's fast forward then a little bit. He goes to, uh, you know, his mother uh, takes her own life. He winds up in World War II. Uh, how long, like to give a, a sense of the timeline, like he, he lands uh, on the shores at, what was it, Le Havre? Yeah, in France, right? In he- France. And then how long between that moment and when he was taken prisoner by the Germans? Okay. He, he had been in training for the previous year. He was in a uh, specialized program where he attended a couple of universities, Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon and University of Tennessee. But Eisenhower canceled the program because he wanted a big final push. He wanted a lot of boots on the ground. So he canceled all these programs that were going to take a long time and instead uh, put, pulled guys out of class and you know put a rifle in their hands and sent them back to boot camp. And so Kurt went from being uh, somebody involved with artillery and engineering to being a scout, being an infantryman. So when he landed in France in uh, September 1944, he was part of a platoon, and uh, their job was to go out and, and you know, reconnoiter. Uh, when he got to the, uh, you know, deep into France um, and moved up to the line that was being um, changed over from uh, the veterans to the new guys, and he was one of the new guys, the Germans waited a few days and then attacked because they realized that they were facing green troops and it was now or never. It was probably a gambit on the part of, of Eisenhower. He wanted to draw the Germans out, you know, hit us with your best shot. And they did. They gathered all their remaining tanks and all the remaining artillery, and in the course of about four days tried to annihilate the Allies with the result that uh, two regiments, Kurtz and one other, were completely surrounded, cut off, and marched deep into Germany, where they were put on boxcars and taken to Stalag. And, and from there, Kurt was taken to Dresden. Wow. So now, how how far of a march are we talking? He he marched in the snow for about three days, um, and all they had on them were what were called D bars, which are like these really heavy-duty chocolate bars that are loaded with protein. Um, so they had a couple of candy bars. Um, once they got on the boxcars, there were no food, there was no food. 
And as they traveled deep into Germany, which took two, three days, um, there, uh, there was an accident. As incredible as it sounds, they were parked in a railroad yard and some British mosquitoes came overhead and mistook the train for a German troop train, not a train full of prisoners, and they bombed it. Oh, God. They, they, they blew some of the boxcars to pieces, killed some of the men. The Germans put the train back together, repaired the, repaired the rails, and he went on deeper into Germany. By the time he arrived at the Stalag, he had been on the move for about six days, living on you know whatever he could cage off the other guys. And the final cruelty, I guess, was when they got off the trains at the Stalag, instead of being marched inside, they were told to lay down in the snow. It was too late to enter the camp. And during the night, a number of the men died from frostbite. Yeah, so, I mean, it's almost like this guy, you know, it's amazing that anybody survives, you know? It's like you yeah. have to have kind of an angel on your shoulder or something. Well, they, they they survived, Brad, but, you know, a number of them were damaged psychologically forever. When I talked to some of those men on the phone, uh, one man began to stutter a great deal when I began to talk about the bulge. Uh, another guy said he would talk to me about it, and when, then when I called him back, he said, look, I'm... I'm sorry, I've been thinking about it, but I just can't go back there. And he hung up. Wow, yes. Um, I mean, even after all that time, because, I mean, it, it's a common story where people who go through the horrors of war can't talk about it. They, they, they can't verbalize right. the experience. There's no way to do it. And, you know, the way that I'm wired, and, and it's impossible to say because I've never been through that, but the, I talk about everything. Like, I, I, go mm-hmm. through, I go through something heavy, and I, I, I kind of want to talk about it even more. But there's something right. sort of... There seems to be something sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, you know, special is the wrong word, but there seems to be something about war experiences that makes them, except, you know, especially difficult to discuss. Yeah. Well, some, uh, that, those men sort of developed a philosophy, and some of them would repeat it to me in, in different ways. But what it came down to is this. A lot of other guys had it worse than me. And so they didn't, they didn't feel like they had the right to gripe. You know, they they saw things and they, they heard things and they think, hey, I came through it, you know, so I really don't have a reason to complain. Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, it's it's an unbelievable thing. And they, uh, you know, they're there in the slaughterhouse or in the, you see, call it a stalag. Is that what it's called? I mean, I, well, the, the stalag was a prisoner of war camp. That's a German word for, you know, encampment or something like that. But the reason he was taken to Dresden was he was made up. He was, he was put into a crew of 150 men who were going to be put on non-combatant duty working in a factory. The Geneva Convention says that you can do non-combatant-related work. And so he was, once again, put on a boxcar and taken to Dresden. And when they got there, they thought that they had lucked out. I mean, here they are in this beautiful city, untouched by the war, an 800-year-old an capital made of you know Baroque and Rococo architecture, and they felt like they had just, you know, by the skin of their teeth come through. Um, but as it turned out, the rations were really very meager. A uh, piece of black bread, some thin soup, and a piece of cheese every other, every other day. With the result that after about six weeks, they realized they were starving. They got empatigo on their skin, and the teeth began to get loose from scurvy. Uh, then came the bombing, and uh, when Kurt came out from where he was hiding in a cellar with all the other POWs, Dresden was gone. Yeah. He, had seen a, he had seen a city. He went below ground. He came up, and there was no city, and there were 60,000 people dead. Um, and that was always the great challenge to him artistically in, in Slaughterhouse-Five was 
How do you tell a story when you've got a beginning and an end but no middle? He was missing Act Two. He, right. you know, he arrived. He arrived at Troy. <laughs> he and then he sailed away with Troy burning in the background, but he didn't see the sacking of Troy, and so that's why uh, Slaughterhouse Five takes this non-structure that it does. It's a non-linear, non-chronological retelling of an event from somebody who has post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like I mean, it, it seems. Uh... Like the only way to put logic to a, what is ultimately a completely illogical scenario. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I'm remembering something that you wrote, but it was about the chaos of the moment and how he was trying in, in Slaughterhouse Five to articulate that. And it's, it's, you know, he, he kind of left himself an impossible task, which is how do I uh, write about something or articulate something that is completely, uh, you know, defies all logic and um, defies all words, you know, like it, mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's, an, you know, you can see why it took him two decades to write the book. Yes. He, he was trying to communicate the experience of most foot soldiers, which is they never really quite know what's going on. They try to be brave. They try to do their duty. They try to come through for their buddies, but yet they, they never know what's happening. Um, and that contributes to, as he said in, uh, you know, in one conversation, the 3000 yards stare which is you know, that resigned look that some war-weary people get when they just seem to be looking at nothing because they realize they have no control. A bullet might have their name on it and might not. Um, so they cease caring. So what about the, the – and there was a guy in his uh, unit or one of his fellow prisoners was the model for Billy Pilgrim, the, the famous mm -hmm. uh, you know protagonist or character in Slaughterhouse-Five. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that guy? Yeah, his name was Joe Crone, and uh, he wanted to be an Episcopalian minister when he got out of the Army. Uh, he was really ill-suited for for military life, but you have to understand that you know World War II was, consisted of a citizen army. You know, it was made up of people who hadn't volunteered to be soldiers, but they were going to try and acquit themselves as best they could. So Joe gets uh, gets involved. I don't know whether he got drafted or he enlisted, but he was not good at close order drill, and he was not good at doing what he was supposed to do. And when he got to Dresden, he had a sort of an unreal sense that this couldn't go on, that the Germans wouldn't really let them starve, and there had to be some recompense for all the sacrifice they were making. And when he realized that there was no logic to it, he spiritually gave up. Um, he began giving away his food. Uh, he fell ill. And he eventually died. Uh, he was so weak that uh, some some of his comrades had to lift him up to go to the bathroom. He he surrendered uh, internally. Uh, this made no sense to him. This was a, such a lack of humanity uh, on all sides that he could couldn't go on. Well, and what was Vonnegut's perception of him? Like what? I mean, well, Va well Vonnegut Vonnegut I think felt that he was almost kind of like a holy fool in a sense. You know, I mean. Um, Joe Crone was so innocent, he just couldn't get the nature of war. It, it, you know, it, it made no sense. It, the moral calculus didn't result in anything for him. He he knows you're supposed to fight for your country. He knows about freedom versus Nazism and all, all that business. But he just saw no end in sight, and he he saw um, a, sort of a desperation. You know that that took overtook him. Yeah, I think that might I think that might happen to me if I went to war. I think I would just <laughs> I think I would just fold in on myself. I don't know. I mean, you yeah. know, I can see because I, you know, reading this book. I mean, I, 
I have such a night. I'm from Indianapolis, which I don't think I told you, but I was I, I spent you know almost ten years there as a kid. I went to high, uh, junior high and high school there, and uh, Vonnegut was big for me as a kid and as a writer. You know, early I'm, I'm like a lot of you know young young people who gravitated to him, and uh, sure. especially since we shared a geography. You know, he sort of uh, and and I felt like you know I felt like Indianapolis was particularly conservative, the suburb that I was in, and you know, he was just so, uh, I don't know, he, for, for an older person, he was so liberated to me. You know, he didn't, right. he didn't uh, obey the rules. And, you know, I found that really, uh, really fun. Right. Uh, but, as you, but as you probably discovered in the biography, um, Vonnegut was not all that radical. He, in some regard, he, he wanted an earlier America. You know, he, he wanted to go back to a a kind of a corny America where there were big families and hot dog roasts and, uh, you know, jumping in Lake Max and Cucky with all your relatives. Uh, he, he wanted to go back to a simpler time. Uh, and, you know, in light of all that was going on in the 60s and the 70s, that was radical talk. It fit right in with the back to the land movement and, you know, communes and everything. But he, he wasn't really there emotionally, you know, with the communes and all. He wanted to go back to the 20s. Well, yeah, and there's always like a, there's such a gentlemanliness to his writing, you know, and to the mm -hmm. way the way that he communicated. I mean, like I guess the word folksy might be, you know, right. might be used or whatever. But I, I never sensed necessarily that he was some sort of firebrand radical. But you know, it depends on who you're talking to or what the context is, I guess, uh, as far as how radical his ideas were. You know, there mm -hmm. is there's maybe some some radicalness to them, but. Uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, to, to get back to, uh, was it Joe Crone? I don't want to miss Crone. Yeah. But with Joe Crone and with the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of person who might just emotionally surrender or internally surrender when faced with that kind of insanity. Uh, and, and then also how, I, I don't know, I guess what it makes me think of relative to your book, uh, and relative to Vonnegut is that like, as a reader and as an artist, I'm really prone to. Uh, idealizing, you know, I, I find, I mean, I hold Vonnegut in my head as this uh, ideal. And I think it, it's because I, I latched onto him as a young person. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, the heroes that you, that you choose when you're young, uh, they're particularly sticky and, mm -hmm. you know, to read, I, 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 you know, I love reading about his life. Um, but at yeah. the same time, there's kind of a heartbreak to learning, uh, that my vision is, is so at odds with the reality, you know, it's, it's it, Right. You know, it's well, you know, I, I didn't I didn't set out, Brad, to uh, expose Vonnegut or say you're wrong to care about him. He has big feet of clay. I, I wanted to show that he was a person who struggled and a person who endured, um, you know, both personally and artistically. He wanted to become a writer and by God, he became a writer, you know, and he, he tried to be master of his craft. Um, and he tried to have successful relationships with other people, and it was hard for him. He was a good buddy and a good male friend. He was not such a good husband. He was not such a good lover, and he was not such a good good uh, father in some regard. Not because he was cruel, but because I think he was not trusting. I think what happened in his own family when he was growing up left him with some residual mistrust and um, uh, fear of intimacy. Um, not an unusual male problem. But uh, for Vonnegut, it seems particularly ironic because in his books he says, 
you know, God damn it, babies, you have to be kind. Right. And, you know, he talks about love and everything. Well, who better to talk about those kinds of things than somebody who's learned to live without it, than somebody who's known loneliness? Right. Or, or, or known, you know, war. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about his, uh, his wives. I mean, he comes out of the war, and he was sort of head over heels for his first wife, Jane. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I just, you know, that relationship, I, I'm trying to rec- recall where it, where it originated, but they had grown up together in Indianapolis. They were in, they were in kindergarten together. Okay. Uh, Kurt had a long time crush on her and wooed her all through World War II. Um, she wasn't as, you know, knocked out by him as he was by her. She was dating other guys. Um, she had other relationships. She was having a good time. But Kurt was just fixated, fixated on her. She was the one for him. And when he came back from World War II, he proposed again, having been turned down once, and she accepted him. Um, but partly because another relationship had fallen through. Kurt always felt like he was plan B, and there may have been some truth to that. Uh, but in any case, uh, they worked real hard at their marriage. The problem was is that Kurt threw over a job at General Electric, which paid well, and, you know, benefits and all the rest of it, to become a freelance writer, which put an enormous amount of stress on his marriage and his family. Sometimes he made money, and sometimes he didn't. And meanwhile, the babies kept coming. And then the size of the family doubled all of a sudden when his sister died of cancer and his brother-in-law was killed in a train accident within 36 hours of each other. So Jesus. now suddenly they, they, they're the inheritors of four boys. So now they have their three plus four boys, making seven children in a rickety house 200 years old on Cape Cod. And Kurt's trying to pay for everything and clothe everybody and give them lessons by being a writer. You know, writing for <laughs> magazines and, 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 and selling paperback books and everything. So there was a tremendous amount of, of, of strain on him, and it, it chafed at his marriage. It, it ground down the affection between him and Jane because they were in a state of crisis <laughs> for yeah. years. Yeah. You know, they were always just barely making it. And it's really hard to be romantic, and it's really hard to find, you know work on the relationship I think Andre Morawa said that a good marriage is an edifice that you have to rebuild every day. There was no time. There were too many children underfoot. And as a result, when Kurt became famous with Slaughterhouse-Five and made a lot of money, he said, in essence, thanks a lot, kid, kissed her on the forehead and left. Went to New York, became involved with a woman 20 years his junior, bought a brownstone, began to associate with fascinating, clever people, uh, eventually bought a house in the Hamptons. And, you know, on the one hand, the man's just living the American dream. He finally made it, he earned it, and he deserved it. And on the other hand, you can say, yeah, but Kurt, what about all that talk about families? What about all that talk about parents? You know, what about, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater? Well, that was part of the personal and creative split in Kurt. He couldn't make his life conform to his books. Well, and, you know, he did, he also, you talk about him finally making it, you know, he was in his forties when this happened and it wasn't like he, he didn't have this success as a young man. He had what, seven children. He had been, he had been married for how many years when this, when the, when the marriage finally married, married in 45, left in 69, but they couldn't sort of let go of each other. And he didn't divorce. They didn't get a divorce until 78. Uh, they spent an entire decade calling and corresponding about the kids because they just couldn't let go. 
Wow. So that's a long marriage, but I mean, he came to his, he came to his literary success late in life, which, right. you know, I, it's, yep. it's sort of hard to fathom because you kind of, you know, when you're my age and you grew up with him, it seems like he was always there, but it was quite a struggle. Yeah. Well, Mark Vonnegut put it really well. He said, you have to understand the dad that I knew when I was growing up couldn't get a job teaching English at the local community college and sold foreign cars. Yeah. He was a sob dealer. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't a counterculture guru. He wasn't a spokesperson for anybody. Nobody was asking him to be on TV. Well, and then, you know, but it was Slaughterhouse-Five that, that pushed him over. I mean, that was it. Right, Every, right. Everything else prior. Because, you know, there were some good books prior to Slaughterhouse-Five. Oh, very much so. And, and tell you, with Jane as his in-house advisor and editor, um, he relied on her. They had a very close working relationship that way. He was a bright woman with a degree in English, Phi Beta Kappa from Swarthmore. So, you know, she was a good person to have on your team. But after Slaughterhouse-Five, he began to realize he could write just about anything and it would sell, as long as it had Vonnegut on the cover and it was cute and witty. And his work began to decline. I think he was partly intimidated by success, but also I think Slaughterhouse-Five was the book that was gestating in him for over 20 years. And when he finally, you know, was published, he said to somebody, I feel like a career has ended. But actually, it was just beginning. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, that it make that makes some sense. You have this thing that you really are burning to say, mm -hmm. and then you say it, and there's nothing else that you're really burning to say quite as much. Like I can relate to that. Like, you know, I, I feel like, especially when you know you're a writer and you're trying to make a living from it and support a family or or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be. Uh, you know, you can have this big success and then, you know, you still have to keep working. You have to keep producing. And I don't know if you can replicate that same sense of urgency in other work. It gets to the point where maybe you're just, you, you know, it becomes a job less than a, it does, a, uh, less than it is a passion. And right. uh, I don't know. I mean, it's impossible for the work not to be affected by that. But right. it's, you know. And eventually, you know, his books became very autobiographical. He had pretty much spun out all the creative fiction ideas that he wanted to address. And so when you get to Timequake, it's a collection of magazine articles, speeches, insights on things. It's really just Kurt being chatty. He's out of gas. Well, yeah, and what about the nonfiction? Because like, I felt like some of his essay collections, I, mean, I think he has two. Is it two mm -hmm. big, big essay yeah. collections? But I've always enjoyed, I always enjoyed that because there, there was no guys. You know, it was just him. Uh, right. You know, I, I felt like some of his essays are, are really, they, they hold up well. Yeah, um, you know, for, he, he always wanted to be a journalist. He respected journalism as a profession, and he liked journalese. He liked the way that newspaper men wrote. Uh, I call them newspaper men because most of them were male in his day. But he could find nothing wrong with talking in, in plain English, uh, you know, sort of a Hemingway-esque style. And something that appeals to us in his nonfiction is that it's just Kurt. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's him. It's him talking is him and there's not all the the kind of the pyrotechnic and special effects or whatever but little jokes and things yeah he's just making a point um and then as far as him you know to get back to his his marriage and stuff and you know when when he and jane finally decided to part ways mm -hmm. uh and he moves to new york and he's and he and he starts uh seeing it's jill Kremens. is that how you pronounce yeah. it well jill Kremens. Kremens. okay so this is this she eventually became his second wife but yeah. how did that relationship start 
Well, uh, Kurt uh, was very confused in 1970. Um, his children were in Cape Cod, and his uh, wife, he, they weren't divorced, were still, was still in Cape Cod, and he's in New York, and he's got a play, and he's being introduced to theater people, and he's hanging out at Sardi's and Elaine's and meeting all kinds of people that he always admired. And along comes a very beautiful photojournalist who wants to document his play uh, and you know take behind-the-scenes pictures and things. And he admires her because she's tough and she's plain spoken. Spoken, whereas Jane tended to be, Jane did not like confrontation. Jane thought that part of being a good wife was always being supportive and smiling through the rain, you know that kind of thing. Jill pulled no punches. Um, she would get really angry at Kurt, uh, and she was also physically very attractive. And he was quite charmed by her. But I have to tell you honestly. Um, in all the letters that I collected that Vonnegut wrote to other people, and there were hundreds, he never came right out and said that he loved Jill. Hmm. Uh, I think it was it was more like he needed somebody to show in New York, and he needed somebody, uh, you know, who was New York smart, and Jill was all that. She's she's very sophisticated, very cosmopolitan, and um, he he she just she shows well. I mean, you know, when they went to the Guggenheim and stuff like that for, for parties, uh, Jill was a knockout. Um, there's something almost kind of Kennedy-esque about her, you know, Jacqueline-like. And so Kurt stayed with her and then eventually married her, I think, almost out of a sense of decency. Uh, he had used up all of her 30s. Uh, they still weren't married. She wanted to have children. And so he married her. Um, but you know what? After that, things didn't go very well because Kurt um, could be a difficult man to live with, and Jill was all, you know, fire and, and, and vinegar in, in, some, in some ways. And, and so as a result, uh, Kurt was always sort of thinking about what might have been, you know, um, and the marriage didn't, just didn't go well. Do you think that he, do you think that he uh, regretted ending his marriage to Jane? Well, he he told his brother Bernard, he said, I had to get out of that kid-centered household. And he, and he said, and I was lonely on Cape Cod where nobody appreciated me and people didn't read the stuff that I wrote. So he felt like he belonged in New York. But I, I all he could say about his marriage to Jane was this. Somebody asked him, you know, what, what happened? She's such a beautiful person. And he said, uh, it wore out. I was bored. And, you know, I guess there was just nothing left in the marriage because they had given so much to keeping their heads above water. Yeah. Well, and then what about uh, his time at Iowa? Because I, I remember reading interviews with him where he really spoke highly of that time and how pivotal it was to him in his career. He, he called, he told me that was his golden era when he was at the University of Iowa in the mid to late 1960s. Well, he was actually only there for two years, 65 through 67. He... Uh, he became famous. <laughs> he showed up broke. He showed up out of print. And two years later, when he leaves, he's got uh, all of his previous books in print, Sirens of Titan and everything, and uh, uh, Cat's Cradle, Player Piano. Uh, Delacorte is bringing out his complete body of work. And um, there's feature articles about him, about how popular he is at the writing workshop. And what a, what, what a dreamlike kind of landscape it was for him, because... Just think, in his first fiction writing class, he has John Casey, John Irving, Gail Godwin, um, 
David, uh, what's the last name pronounced? Milch, M-I-L-C-H. Um, you know, the uh, guy who writes, what was it, Hill Street Blues and, um, and uh, Deadwood. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a class. Yeah. What, what talent. And was he was he and he was a revered teacher? I mean, I have read that he was you know when he was at his best, he was quite a good teacher. Well, at, at first they were skeptical. I mean, nobody had heard of him. Everybody wanted to wanted to get Nelson Algren, who was also on the staff, or they wanted to get Donald Justice for poetry. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut. All anybody knew about him was that he published in magazines like Collier's and Ladies Home Journal, and that he had published some science fiction paperbacks. You know, under their breath, a lot of them thought that he was a hack. And but and they, they had got they'd gotten him by default. And then, but they came around. I mean, most of them anyway, right? Right. You know, they came in all starry eyed and thought they were going to get uh, published in in uh, literary magazines and things like that. And Kurt was somebody who had earned his bread and butter through sales and talking to the market and reading what people wanted to read. And so he told them, "You're not authors. You haven't sold anything. You haven't paid your dues." You know, it, it's not a matter of who can write the best and, and who's the cleverest and things. There's a reality to being a professional writer. And they eventually bought into it. They realized that here's a guy who knows whereof he speaks. He's been out there. Well, and, and just to, I mean, how did he get the job at Iowa? Like, how did he wind up there in the first place? If he was only publishing in Collier's well, and Ladies Home Journal, you know, had some, somebody there obviously must have been his champion. He was an 11th hour choice. That's what happened. Uh, Robert Lowell couldn't make it. Uh, so he was basically, the, the, a, he filled in. <laughs> right. The school year was going to start in September. He gets a letter in late July. Any chance you might want to come out to Iowa? <laughs> and, and he jumped at it. He the, jumped at it. The rest is history. And this was, and, and timing-wise, this was just as his marriage was beginning to fade. It, it was, yeah. Uh, he, um, he He had to get away, he felt. And once he got out there and was surrounded by other working writers and people who just, you know, talked books and talked writing and talked craft, uh, he he understood that he he wanted a new direction in his life. He went back to Cape Cod over winter vacation and he wrote a friend. He said, "I don't know what's happened, but I hate this house." And that was it. God, I mean, it's, it seems like a, it just seems so. It's just heartbreaking. He's got all those kids and and he just was yeah. miser and he was miserable with it. <laughs> Right, trying to do the right thing, trying to be the good dad, and yet he knows that to be true to himself, he has to he has to leave. Yeah. Well, and so then he leaves there to, after two years. He's famous uh, suddenly, and you know he's got all this cachet with uh, young people of the time and in, in the counterculture. And you know, one of the things that you uh, write about is that his time that he had spent working as a pitchman at GE. Uh, provided some, uh, you know, some foundation for how he managed his own public image. And, like, this was a part of it that sort of made me wince a little bit, too, is that, you know, the the long hair, like the kind of the, the curly-haired Vonnegut who's sort of like, you know, uh, the, the cool uncle or like the, I guess, guru. Some people might use mm -hmm. that word. That seems like a little bit heavy for me. But you know what I'm saying. Like, mm -hmm. some a lot of that was like something that he was like very conscious of and he sort of crafted. I mean, is that true? I mean... Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's not so awful. Think think of it this way. Samuel Clemens was doing Mark Twain. Mark Twain was a persona. Samuel Clemens was a, a well-read, bright guy who was interested in science, who was a heavy investor in technology. Um, you know, one of his best friends was Nicholas Tesla, 
the uh, scientist. And Kurt, you know, was a bright guy and was watching what was going on on the literary scene in the 60s. And he sees a guy like Norman Mailer, uh, a Jewish kid, you know, from New York, Harvard educated in aeronautical engineering, become uh, a very dangerous person and sort of the bet noir of, of talk shows. You know, the two-fisted uh, fiction writer, two-fisted novelist. You know, he, he looks at Tom Wolfe with his white suits. And uh, he realized that, you know, you need a hook. <laughs> I know, but see, that's the thing about it, though. As a writer and, you know, somebody who works with a lot of writers, like, and, and you know, it's a different world now, so everything's online. But all I want, and I think one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I do this show, one of the reasons why I do this show is that I just want to talk to the people and I want it to, you know, to the actual writers and I want it to be as authentic as possible. And this notion that you need a hook or that this presentation and this pitch has mm-hmm. to be there, the white suit or whatever, like... I find myself at odds with that, at least personally. It's just like, ugh. Like I just, I just kind of want people to be people, and yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Well, we're no, we're no longer enamored. You know, we're no longer blown over by um, authors uh, and seeing them and hearing them. But you have to understand that that television in the '50s and the '60s brought people into uh, ordinary people's living rooms that they they never had any hope of seeing. You know, they had access all of a sudden to really creative, interesting people. And those creative, interesting people found out that if they acted up a little bit on the tube, it was good television. It was good press. I mean, you know, Cavett baited some of those people. You know, Gore Vidal and, and, and Buckley and uh, Norman Mailer, they would come on and put on a bit of a show. Sure. Now we do it. You know, now we see Letterman do it and we think, hey, he's just being Letterman. But it was it was very different and and very uh, well. There were there were actually writers on shows like Letterman. You know, like Letterman has like David Sedaris on. But I mean, you, you mm-hmm. never you never see authors on mainstream television shows. You rarely do, unless it's Charlie Rose. You know, mm-hmm. right? Well, it used to be very common. It used yeah. To be very, Johnny Carson. You know, primetime late night television routinely had authors come out. Yeah, I mean, it's just a different world, and I, I, I guess I feel like most of it now is on the internet, and you live in. Right. We're living in times where there's just so much coming at everybody uh, that you, I guess you have to try to find ways to make yourself stand out. But I, I guess I find it wearying, uh, you mm-hmm. know, posturing online and trying to be controversial or you know create some sort of image that that isn't really even uh, true. <laughs> right. Ultimately, no. you know that, that that seems like a lot of work to me. It is a lot of work. <laughs> um, so. I guess like then, you know, you get into Vonnegut's, you know, once we get past 1980, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and there was a suicide attempt. I mean, is that true? I, mean, I feel like there's some sort of, I, I've read his yeah. his kids say that there, you know, there wasn't as much, Yeah, not, they weren't sure if he was truly suicidal or if he was, um, you know, if he was just bummed out a little bit or wanted to sort of, I don't know, like what, what was your read on that? He, he was getting it from all different directions. Uh, you know, he was getting it from his, when I say getting it, what I mean is he seemed to be the center of a lot of discontent on the part of people who were close to him. Uh, his, his kids were not happy about his uh, life in New York. Um, Jane wanted to know whether she was going to be included in his will for the sake of the children. Uh, his wife, uh, uh, sorry, wait, I mean, Jane, sorry, wanted to know if she's going to be included in the will. Jill wanted to know if she wanted to be included in the will. And suddenly he felt like, you know, um, a sugar daddy, I guess. He, he felt like um, I'm only necessary around here in terms of what I can provide. 
Um, and so he fell into one of his deep funks, which he did periodically. And I think he he drank too much and he took some sleeping pills with the result that he couldn't be woken up. Um, you know, Jill went to wake him up and he was out and they called an ambulance. Whether that's a suicide attempt or whether that's just, you know, born of being very angry and disgusted and wanting to uh, uh, blame people for your unhappiness, I don't know. Mark felt like he didn't try hard enough. There was sort of a lack of commitment there, you know. If he really wanted to kill himself, he certainly knew how to. But uh, it's a sad episode. I mean, whenever somebody is, is so far down that they feel that they just can't face it anymore. That's very sad. Well, and then what about, I mean, what about his age at that time? Because it seems like a, it seems like he was right around the age that his mother uh, committed suicide, too. I mean, is, that, yeah. is that correct? I mean, it seems like that was, that's kind Yeah, of... you're right, and that's a good point. I'm glad you pointed out. He was, he was just about that age, and who knows? I'm, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, but it could be that Kurt wanted to face down the big bugaboo of his life, which was parental suicide. Um, and maybe this was just some rite of passage. You know, when you you probably haven't had this experience, but when you outlive your parents, you you feel a sense of pride almost. You know, I mean, you have you've gone beyond any place that they've gone before, and perhaps this was just his way of you know looking at the specter right in the eye. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then his work after that point. I mean, you get through the '80s and the '90s. I mean, even he seemed to acknowledge that. Uh, you know, he he didn't have as much to say anymore. I know towards the end of his life, he was really candid about that. <laughs> he was like, I'm done. I have nothing left to say. But, of course, he kept publishing here and there. But Right. Yeah, he, look, Kurt was an extrovert. And, you know, books and writing gave him an excuse to get out and be interviewed and talk to audiences. I mean, it became less uh, of something that he had to do to satisfy a creative itch and more as an opportunity to get out and about and see people. Uh, he liked being on the road. He liked living out of hotel rooms, and he, he liked having dinner with new people. Uh, he was unusual as a writer in that regard. I mean, a lot of writers sort of turn inward, you know, but Kurt could simultaneously work a hard day and go out that night and to a party and have a heck of a time. Hmm. So when you get, I mean, you know, you said early, uh, earlier in the conversation that you had been a fan of his as a young man, or had been at least aware of him, uh, and then you get to the point where you're working as a biographer, you've done uh, the biography of Harper Lee, and then you, you settle on at least attempting to do the Vonnegut biography. So how did you get in touch with him? I wrote him a letter uh, and just said who I was and that I had published a book about Harper Lee and I was interested in doing his biography because of what he meant to my generation. And I, you know, I gave several reasons, similar to the ones I gave to you, and he, he turned me down. So wait, did, did you write to him at his home or did you write to him through his like? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote to him at his home. I, I happened to be out in, um, in Los Angeles being filmed for a documentary about post, post-World War II writers and... I took a chance, and I asked the director, who seemed pretty well-connected. I said, you know how I can get in touch with Kurt Vonnegut? He says, I don't offhand, but give me a week. <laughs> and so a week later, I get a note in the mail saying this is his home address. Oh, wow. So I wrote to him, I wrote to him directly. And as I say, the first time he turned me down, and the second time he, um, he, he said yes, because I opened up to him, and I, I told him about all the things that we had in common and why I was the guy for the job. And so then you're up in New York and you're actually meeting with the guy. Mm-hmm. Were you, oh, yeah. Were you nervous? 
No, I I have to tell you honestly, I'm I'm not impressed by celebrity. I meet famous people sometimes, and and I congratulate them on their success, and I want to get to know them, but. I don't see a colored aura around them. <laughs> right. I don't. I don't. I don't feel a a need to go down on one knee. You know, there there are other there are people who have tried hard in their profession and become successful. And so when I got out of the cab one rainy day uh, to meet Kurt, and he opened the door in his brownstone, and there he was. Um, but so, so okay. So but there's nobody in your life. You had no heroes or anyone that would have freaked you out. Because like for him, for me, I have very few. But I think he's probably one of them. <laughs> You know, well, I, I I go into my watching mode when I meet famous people. I mean, I I I really try to get a, a read on them. I, I I it started long ago when I was when I was very young, and I happened to go to the White House with my father one time, and uh, President Johnson uh, welcomed us. It was a Civil War group, and we were there to go around Gettysburg, and uh, we went to the White House uh, because someone there had some connections. And a pair of doors open, and in walks the President of the United States. And I just went into my sort of radar mode. I mean, I I studied him, uh, the color of his face and the, the blue-gray suit he was wearing, how tall he was and how courtly, um, the way he shook absolutely everybody's hand in that room because he was getting votes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I just, that's the way I am when I, when I meet people who are important. I want to, oh, I, I watch them. Okay, so then you uh, you get to Vonnegut's uh, brownstone, and you're finally meeting Kurt Vonnegut in person for the first time. Just t- take us there. I want I want to know a little bit more about what that moment was like. Oh, I he was almost like a boy who was making a new friend. The first thing he said to me was, "Do you want to see my room?" <laughs> I said, "Sure." <laughs> so we went up, we went up three flights up to his study on the top floor, and there was a queen size bed in there um, where he took naps and his desk where he worked some file cabinets, some books, a coffee table, and uh, a Mac clamshell, and um, some of his drawings that had been matted and were leaning up against the wall. I I flipped through them and made a lot of appreciative noises and asked him who his influences were. And it was sort of a way of, you know, showing showing that I really wanted to get to know him and that I admired him. And then we went out to lunch. And uh, he wasted no time and started talking right away about his family. Uh, I pulled out a legal pad and began taking notes, and that was the beginning of our working together professionally. And for the next several months, he would call me late at night when he felt like talking, or he would send me postcards or magazine articles uh, where he was interviewed, and I wrote him back, and we kept up a lively correspondence, and I was at his home on March 14, 2007, when uh, after I said goodbye, I'll be back tomorrow. He went outside to take his dog for a walk, slipped down the stairs, and fell face forward on the sidewalk. Hit his head and went into a coma. So you were there. You were there that day. Yes. Wow. And and you know he had had a, a premonition back in in his early in an earlier part of his life that a dog would one day kill him. Correct. Yes. Yeah. In 1975, he sent a letter to Jane, and he said, "I have this recurring premonition. I'm going to be killed by a dog." And he thought that was very ironic because he loved dogs, and there were always dogs in his life. And then he wound up tripping on the leash, and that was that was it. Right. He never he never regained consciousness after that. Never did. Never right. died. Died a month later. So how did that affect the writing of your book? Did that change things, or I mean, or did it? Did you just um, continue on? Well, Obviously, not having him would change things, but yeah, it it, it was. I grieved about it because we were going to work together. I had really come to like him. And on the other hand, I had learned a lot about him, and now I had a free hand. 
because, you see, I had promised him that I would show him the manuscript and that he could review it. And as I said in the letter to him, he could remove, remove anything that was hurtful or untrue. Um, and he thought that was great. That was our gentleman's understanding. Well, he passed on, and I didn't have to show the manuscript to anybody. So he had told me who to contact, and he told me important things about his life, and then he exited. And then what about his family uh, and their level of cooperation and how they responded after he after he passed away? Like, did they, It sounds like uh, well, Jill didn't want to have much to do with it, correct? No, I think, I think right. I think Jill felt uh, threatened by the book uh, because she didn't have any control over it. Uh, two of, the, of, the, of his children, his two daughters, Nanny and Edie, wanted to work with me on it. Uh, Nanny sort of sticking up for her mom and uh, Edie sticking up for her dad. And uh, Mark didn't want to work on it um, for reasons of his own. I, I suspect it's because uh, his relationship with his father was um, kind of rocky and not very satisfactory. And uh, a big biography of his, his dad would open up a lot of doors that he wanted to keep closed. Sure. Well, Charles, I, I appreciate the time. It's been great to talk with you. Uh, and, you know, the book is called And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. Uh, go out and get it. It's an interesting read if you're a Vonnegut fan. Thanks for your time, Charles. Well, thank you, Brad. Okay, there you have it, everybody. That's Charles Shields for the hour. The book is called And So It Goes, Kurt Vonnegut, A Life. It's out there now in hardcover from Henry Holt. It's a terrific Christmas gift for the chain-smoking, self-loathing pessimist in your life. Uh, you can find Charles at charlesjshields.com. You can also find him on Twitter. His handle is at charlesjshields, and he has a Facebook presence. So if you're on Facebook, go poke him on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. You can find it on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at bradlisty. The show has a Facebook presence. Or if you want, you can email me. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, one final reminder, folks. The holidays are here. The TNB Book Club has a great gift offer for book nerds everywhere. It's called the TNB Book Club Holiday Six Pack. Here's how it works. You sign up now and you get six books for under 10 bucks. Six books for under 10 bucks. if you sign up right now. You get titles from publishers like Algonquin, Harper Perennial, Hawthorne Books, Dark Coast Press, and Echo. To do it, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, and away you go. It's easy. It's an insane deal. Give the gift of books. Uh, okay, so I think that's it. Uh, my brain is starting to fade. I'm recording this late at night, and my daughter just started crying a couple of minutes ago. Uh, I think I might have woken her up because I'm talking too loudly. I'm trying to project my voice a little bit. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm trying to broadcast so that this show doesn't put you to sleep, which uh, creates an odd irony in that I'm trying to keep you awake while simultaneously trying to keep my daughter asleep, if that makes any sense. And, uh, you know, this is what I do late at night in the wee hours. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry if I got a little agitated at the top of the show about the whole self-seriousness and self-protection thing. Uh, you know, that's, that stuff starts to make my brain explode. And I think ultimately it might have something to do uh, with competition, with sensing that, with just having this, this sense of human competition and like the mighty struggle that everybody or most of us uh, are engaged in, the rat race, Darwin, natural selection, that kind of thing. And I remember, uh, you know, Vonnegut wrote an essay, I believe, once about his discomfort with the whole natural selection thing, the survival of the fittest. 
and how he, you know, he didn't like it and he feared that Darwin was right. And uh, I think, I, you know, I'm somewhat similar. I don't like to think about human beings competing for things. I don't like to think about things like the genetic lottery. I don't like to think of human beings, uh, you know, and, and then in a parallel way, think of like a bunch of hyenas around a gazelle carcass or something. You know, I want like the Disney version. I want Hakuna Matata. Or actually, you know what? I don't want that. I don't want that one either because I think that's almost probably, you know, more exhausting than the hyenas fighting over the gazelle. Uh, I think what I want is no hyenas or, or I want hyenas taking a nap. I want lazy hyenas. I want docile animals that have no pretense and sit around all day long asking each other why they're here. That's what I want. I want lazy, docile animals asking each other deeply relevant cosmic questions. All right, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to bed. Uh, Remember, you are the eyes, ears, and conscience of the creator of the universe, whatever that is. Have fun with it. Enjoy yourself. I'm going to be back really soon with another disjointed internal monologue of a slightly over-personal nature that makes you feel a little bit less alone.